Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So this morning, we're going to go to Jonah chapter 2. Have you ever received a gift that is so over the top, so extravagant, maybe so expensive, so unexpected, that it just kind of makes you feel awkward? You know that kind of gift where you know saying thank you doesn't do it, and you can't pay them back for it, and it just leaves you in this really awkward spot of just saying thank you. Uh, over the years, Karis and I have had, we've been blessed so much by different people. And like I remember a, a while ago now, uh, our dryer broke. And Jack and Cindy Boyington actually surprised us. You, you, you probably don't even remember, do you? Uh, you do, okay. Bought us a dryer all those years ago, and I think we're still using it. It's still going. And you know, that was so sweet. And I know we joke about my monster truck, and, but the truth is, it came at a time that we needed it. I, we needed a vehicle, couldn't afford to buy a new vehicle. Harless and Lori blessed us with their very old truck and still driving it, loving it. This, he got me. He's the reason why I do scrapping, because of Harless. So you can thank him for it, because he got me hooked on the truck thing. And then, and then you know the story last year of my motorcycle and how a friend of mine just meets me in the parking lot and says, I want to give you my motorcycle, and this motorcycle's gorgeous. And it was so weird last year when he drove that thing into our driveway, hands me the keys, sign the papers, good luck. It's, what do I, what do you do when somebody gives you a gift like that? You, here's five bucks. You, you can't do that, doesn't work. I even found myself feeling awkward at the store trying to buy him a thank you card. Because what kind of thank you card? Like, I was stuck. Do I, do I go the 99 cent thank you card cheap route, or do I go the $6 with the pop-out job? Like, how extravagant do I have to get with the thank you card in order to thank him for the gift? You know what I mean? It's just, you feel awkward. The, the Bible has a word for that. It's called grace. So grace is an undeserved gift given to us by an unobligated giver. It's an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. The best way to maybe understand grace a little bit further is to pair it up with its sister quality, which is mercy. Grace and mercy are twin sisters, I call them. They're two sides of the same generosity coin. So mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve, and grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Mercy and grace. It's like this. Let's say I'm driving my car 100 miles an hour in a 15-mile-an-hour school zone. And a police officer pulls me over, and I know I'm toast. I know it. I mean, it's obvious. There's no way around it. If I can't excuse it. I know I broke the law really badly. And he comes up, and he's fuming. And he says, don't you know I could give you a ticket? Yes, sir. And don't you, do you know how fast you were going? Yes, sir. And don't you know I could fine you? Yes, sir. And don't you know I could take your license away? Yes, sir. He gives me the whole speech. And then he softens up. He says, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Today, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm just going to write you a warning. Just don't let me see you do this again. Whew! That's called mercy. 
I did not get what I do deserve. See that? But now let's say a week later, the same thing happens. In the exact same place, the exact same police officer <laughs> pulls me over, and I see him in my rearview mirror, and smoke is coming out of his ears. He is absolutely fuming, because he recognizes the car and me, and it's just a week. And he's so mad, he can't even finish his sentences. You ever been that mad? Where you just say, aren't you the... And you did that, and I did that, and uh, 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 and he's just, just livid, beyond livid. And then suddenly he softens up, and he says, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not even going to write you a warning this time. Instead, what I'm going to do is, and he reaches in his pocket, he says, I'm going to give you the keys to a new car. Diet, da, da, da. And suddenly confetti starts dropping out of the sky and a band pops out of the bushes and they start playing. And I'm like sitting there in my car feeling really weird. Like, am I, is this is surreal? Am I on TV? This is, because I know what I deserve. And yet he's giving me a brand new car. Like that is grace. An undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. Listen, it's one thing for God to have mercy on you and me by saving us from hell. That's mercy. It's quite another thing for God to add to that and say, how about I make you part of my family? I give you my inheritance. I give you my name. I call you my own. Whew. That's grace. And the truth is, we sit there in the car and we know we're caught red-handed. I know what I deserve, I know, and yet I'm receiving this awesome gift. And the goal of grace is to actually change you from the inside out. That's God's motive in it. I mean, God is gracious, so I guess he doesn't need any more motive than that. That's just his character. But the net effect in your life and mine, when we understand grace, is, we understand, is it changes us. It gives us the want to change and not the have to change. It's kind of like the next time I'm driving through the school zone in my brand new car with the Corinthian leather seats and the heated steering wheel and the kicking sound system and the moonroof and the, all of that, and I'm tempted to speed, I think, mm, this, this car, this, I got a good like, this is really good. And I want to honor the man that gave me. I mean, he paid a lot. I don't know. This car must have cost a boodle. I mean, he, I, I want to honor the giver of this awesome gift. And yeah, I think I'll stick to 15. See, grace changes us. You know, there's two ways to motivate somebody to do the right thing. You can be motivated by guilt. Guilt works great. Anybody had a mother? It guilt works fantastic. You can, you can get somebody to do the right thing by guilting them into it. That's the truth. The problem with guilt is it, it only gets you to do the right behavior. It doesn't actually change you in, from the inside out. But we use guilt all the time. It's a very effective tool. School teachers use it. Parents use it. Preachers use it. Religion uses it politicians use it. I mean, it gets used all the time because it's effective. But it doesn't change the heart. Hear me, some, hear me, friend. God never uses guilt. That's not God's MO. God uses grace. Grace is a powerful, powerful motivator. 
Because what grace does is it changes the heart from the inside, so now I don't do what I have to do because I have to do it. I do it because I want to do it, because I'm overwhelmed by the blessing and the goodness that God's put in my life. The Bible says it this way in Romans chapter 4. The song that we sang a moment ago has the verse in it, and I thought it was so powerful. It says, God's kindness leads us towards repentance. Actually, that's Romans 2 verse 4. I got the reference wrong. God's kindness leads us towards, could you read that out loud with me, please? God's kindness leads us towards repentance. God's kindness actually inspires me to change. It's amazing. Elsewhere in Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says this, the grace of God has appeared, let me find it here, it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see that? God's grace has appeared, and it teaches us to do what? To say no to ungodliness, and it actually inspires us to say yes to living upright godly lives, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's grace does that. See, here's how this works. I can give it practically from my own life. You know, I, it's no secret, I've shared it before, that many years ago, I was addicted to pornography. And praise God, I've, you know, I've experienced a victory and, and freedom over that for a long time now. Thank the Lord. But you know, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I didn't get tempted because I'm still, you know, I ain't dead yet. So the temptation still crosses the way. You know, there's, and you know how this temptation works. There's times where, you know, you think in your mind, the voice in your mind says, what would happen if you just Googled that word? I wonder. And I know exactly what would happen. But you know, that's the temptation. That's the voice. But you know what happens in that moment? The grace of God kicks in. This is what it does in my life now. This is how I've been able to have victory all these years. The grace of God kicks in. I start to think, God, you have given me such a wonderful, sweet wife. I'm so thankful for the gift that she is to me. I wouldn't want to do anything to jeopardize that. And, and you've blessed me with three awesome kids. I'm so thankful for my children and all that you're doing in their lives. I wouldn't want to do anything to jeopardize that. And, and I have a foster grandson now, somebody that we're, we love dearly, and we sure pray we get to adopt him and make him our own. And I want to give him a godly grandfather to follow, you know? Like, I wouldn't want to do anything to jeopardize that. And, and, I, and I love you guys. I thank God for my church family. Like, you're awesome, and the blessing that you are to me and to our family. Like, we're so thankful for you. And I, by the time I go through that, the grace of God, I assess the grace of God in my life, the temptation has gone away. In fact, not only has it gone away, it looks stupid. Because when I line it up, that temptation next to the grace of God that he has given in my life, I mean, there's no comparison. You see how the grace of God teaches you to say no and say yes to an upright, godly life, it's powerful in changing your life. Now, 
we see God's grace at work in Jonah's life today. We come to Jonah chapter two. We've been talking about Jonah for a couple of weeks now. And last Sunday, uh, Dave, um, Dave Hoover, Dave spoke, didn't he? He did a great job last Sunday. Yeah, thankful for that. I heard, I heard that he did great. I haven't, it wasn't recorded or anything, so I didn't get to listen to it. But those of you that were blessed, I know you were. A number of, I heard some great testimonies. But uh, the last time I talked, I got to end with Jonah in the water. We've been kind of walking through this story in Jonah and leaving us with cliffhangers each week. So remember last time I talked, we, Jonah was thrown overboard, and next time, continued next time, commercial break. So here we are, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Here's what happens next in Jonah's story. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God provided a huge fish to swallow. God provided the fish. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a misfortunate event. The Lord of the universe provided a fish, and that was God's grace to Jonah. The first point that you need to know about grace is this. Sometimes God's grace does not appear to us as kindness. But when I'm in dire straits, like Jonah floating to the bottom of the sea, <laughs> a huge being eaten by a fish, that's actually God's kindness. Now, see, you and me sitting here in the comfort of our seats, we're thinking, I can think of better ways to be kind like Jonah gets chucked overboard and a carnival cruise ship happens to be going by at the same time. And next thing you know, Jonah's getting a back rub in the spa and he's sipping lemonade and he's like, oh, how sweet the sound. I once was lost, but now I'm found, baby, to the left. Oh, yeah. Right, Jonah? The kindness of God. Like, that's my idea of God's kindness. But getting eaten by a fish? Mm, not really. But you see, I say that from the comfort of this place. And this is where we need to understand this, that my ability to appreciate God's grace is in proportion to my awareness of my need. When I'm sinking at the bottom of the ocean and I have no options, being swallowed by a fish is kindness. Have you ever experienced God's kindness in that dark place in your life? And you look back on it and you say, oh, I'm so thankful, God, because that was my turnaround moment right there. I mean, anybody else looking at it would say that was not a pleasant experience, but I, and I would say it was not a pleasant experience, but looking on it, I'm grateful for it. Because that was the moment that, that the downward trend of my life was stopped once and for all. And we see that in Jonah's story, the first chapter of Jonah Going down is actually a theme that you see repeated in the chapter. God tells him, go to Nineveh. So the Bible tells us he went down to Joppa, went down to a boat, went down inside the boat, and then he was down in the water, and then he was down in the belly of a fish. The message is very clear in Jonah chapter 1. Run from God, and you will go down. That's the message. It's not, it's not, it's not complicated. Listen, you know, you might call yourself progressive, but listen, there is, no, there is no progress if you're going away from God. 
And I don't mean that as a political statement. I'm just saying there's no progress if we're going away from God. Jonah testifies to that. So Jonah's going down, 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 and swallowed by a fish. And that is God's grace to Jonah. You know, um, a lot of people struggle with uh, the message that Jesus is the only way because we think that that's not grace. People think that's not kind. They think, well, if that's, that's being very narrow-minded. I mean, if God was truly loving, he would give us many options. Why does he just have the one? And we argue against that. But you understand that when God is being, when God says that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that's not being narrow, that's keeping it simple. Because a drowning man doesn't have time to question a lifeboat. I just want to know, is this the one that's going to get me out of this mess? Because that's the one I want. See, if I stand before the doctor and I have cancer, terminal, and who knows how long I have to live, I don't really want the doctor to confuse me with 50 different options. I say, please, just give me the one that works. See, when, when I'm in a desperate strait, when I'm Jonah floating to the bottom of the sea, I don't question the grace and the goodness of God. I take it. And if you're here this morning, I'm not saying that to put you down. If that's you, if you're, think, if you're one of those that says, oh, Jesus can't be the only way, please, we have room for you here at New River, and we want you to come and grow with us, and let's explore God together. But you need to understand something. <laughs> God loves you, and he's given you a way out of the sin and the confusion and the mess that is prevalent in our world, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the solution that your heart is looking for, and my prayer is that you will see it, my friend. So Jonah, sinking to the bottom, God provides him a fish, and Jonah takes this moment to pray. <laughs> I, wonder if, I wonder if it took Jonah a few seconds to realize he was still alive. I'm guessing being swallowed by a fish and going down an esophagus of a fish is not a pleasant experience. I don't know what that's like. But finally, he finds himself in the stomach of the fish, and I wonder if Jonah kind of did one of these, am I living or am I dead? Is this a dream? And he begins in this moment with the time that he has left to pray. Because remember, Jonah doesn't know the end of the story. We have to keep that in mind. So chapter 2, verse 1. He says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed. Prayed to the Lord as God. I think it's fascinating that now God is his God. A moment ago when he's running from God, God's not my God. But now that I'm <laughs> in a fish's gut, suddenly, God, I need God. And now he's calling out on God. And you know, God is gracious. Because it's the grace of God to even hear that prayer. Do you see that? God doesn't have to hear his prayer. Does, does Jonah deserve to have God hear his prayer? No. And yet he does. Do you see the grace? You see God's kindness to us. Okay. Woo. Okay, so now I'm going to keep going. Don't let me preach. So chapter, so verse 2. So Jonah prays, and he says this. He says, um, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. 
You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look again toward your holy temple. I have been banished, Jonah says. I have been, you hurled me into the depths of the sea. That's divine justice. Jonah recognizes that he is the recipient of his just deserts. I have sinned against God, and as a result, God has hurled me into the depths, and I have been banished from his sight. Do you see that? You see, a, a broken, uh, one of the marks of brokenness in our lives, one of the marks of humility in our hearts, is acknowledging that, really, I deserve much worse is acknowledging, like Jonah, I'm, I'm in this predicament because of my choice. And I'm receiving justice, really. And if I don't receive justice or any amount of justice that I don't receive, that's called, what's it called? Grace, Grace mercy, right. And he says, as he recognizes that I am where I am because I have run from God, he says, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Obviously, Jonah is not looking at the physical temple. You see that? Because he's in, he's in a fish's gut. So let's face it, he can't see the temple from where he's at. But what's he saying? He's metaphorically saying, see, as a Jew, the temple represented the very presence of God. And so when he says, I'm looking towards the holy temple, he's saying, I'm, it's another way of saying, I'm looking to God. I'm, I'm turning towards you, God. I'm looking to you for the answers. He goes on to say, verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me. They deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Isn't that a pathetic picture? You just picture this guy, seaweed, fish poop in his ear. I mean, he's really quite a mess, right? He's just, it's, it's pathetic. Seaweed wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. So he recognizes that there's nothing he can do about this predicament. I have been barred in. You see that? I've gone as well to the roots of the mountains. I mean, how far down is that? <laughs> the roots of the mountains have to be pretty deep. I mean, metaphorically speaking, he's at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, and he's stuck there. He's barred there. He can't get out of there. And so he, his only recourse is, God, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Hey, listen, helpless is a great place to find yourself. When I come and I see I am barred in and there's nothing I can do to fix this, there's nothing I can do to satisfy this hole in my soul, there's nothing that I can do in my own strength to cure this angst that I have in my heart, this, ang this anxiety that stirs up, this, this anger that stirs up, this, this feeling of unsettledness. There's like nothing I can do to satisfy that. And I've tried all these different ways, different relationships and jobs and things and whatever. I've tried all these different ways to satisfy that 
emptiness, and there's nothing I can do. I'm barred in. Oh, that's a great spot to be. Helpless is a great place to find yourself. And he says, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. And then verse 7 is sort of a testimonial. He goes, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. My life was ebbing away. Why do we have to wait until our life ebbs away before we actually remember the Lord? But have you noticed that we have a tendency to do that as human beings? <laughs> Once my life ebbs away, everything that I think is life, all of my comforts and all of my, you know, they all start ebbing away, and suddenly, God, I'm remembering God. Huh. I find, I think that believing in God is like buying a Christmas tree. You go, how is that? Let me explain. So one of our traditions as a family is each year we like to go to a farm and like to cut down our own Christmas tree, and that's a lot of fun. And I've noticed something over the years of doing this, that as soon as we get out of the car, we're just excited. I mean, we're singing Christmas carols. The Christmas spirit is in the air. We can't wait to get our tree. And at first... We're really picky about the trees. Well, that's too tall, that's too short, that's too fat, that's too scrawny, that's got a hole in the side. You've been through this process before, I'm sure. You know, you're judging every tree on the lot. But what happens after about two, three hours walking around the farm? Suddenly the trees look better. And you go back to the first tree you saw back at the beginning three hours ago, and you're like, let's take that one. Well, why? What changed? Okay, I'm cold, I'm hungry, and I have to pee. Buy that thing, let's get out of here. It's suddenly the tree looks really amazing. What happened? My comforts, as I got more and more uncomfortable, suddenly, ah, there it is. And that's, what, that's the way it works in our relationship with God. Sadly, some people have to get more and more uncomfortable. The life, as Jonah says, my life ebbs away. And then I remember God. There he is. But you know, again, God is so kind, isn't he? Because God doesn't receive you back with the finger shaking in your face saying, you forgot me, you left me, you... He doesn't do that. Oh, that is not the heart of our God. He's gracious, compassionate, forgiving, receives us, does he not? It's amazing. His kindness, see, drink, brings us to repentance, as it says. And then verse 8 is, I think, probably one of the best uh, lines in the entire book of Jonah. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Now, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't like the way it's translated. This is the new NIV you're, some of you that have the older version of this, you probably have it better in your Bibles. You see it? It says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's powerful. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. See, what that does is it puts the choice in your lap, in my lap, where I have this option. I can cling to my idols. I can, I can cling to, 
And your idol is anything you're using to fill that hole in your soul that's not God. Your, your idol is whatever it is that you're using to cope with the stuff that's going on. Like that, that's your idols. If you cling to those, you forfeit, actually, forfeit the grace that could be yours. So here's this awesome blessing that is available to you and to me. And the way that I receive it is by letting go of these. I'm actually forfeiting it if I, can, if I insist on bringing these into my relationship with God. You see, the, the first step to receiving an abundant life in Christ is admitting that you don't have one. It's admitting that everything you've tried to have an abundant life hasn't worked. That's the first step, actually, to receiving the grace of God, is to admit that I, I need it. You see, God's grace does not apply to your successes. God's grace applies to your failures. God's grace is not for you who have it all together, which, by the way, none of us does. Togetherness is a facade. But if you think you have it all together, God's grace is not for the altogether person. God's grace is for the one who's a wreck, the one who acknowledges, I need your grace. Like Jonah, I'm at the bottom in a fish's gut. I need you. And then Jonah's testimony, he ends this thing. Look where he ends, verse 9. He says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I'm going to make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord, he says. Those five words, I think, summarize the entire Bible. Salvation comes from the Lord. See, our culture tells you that salvation comes in all kinds of different forms. Whatever you want, that's salvation for you. The Bible has one very clear message. Salvation comes from the Lord. You want hope, you want the answer, you want the solution, it comes from the Lord. The reason why we're in this mess is because we ran from God in the first place, and the key to fixing it is to start running to God. See, salvation comes from the Lord. Lord. Summarizes the whole Bible. And this is Jonah's testimony. And you know what I think is fascinating is Jonah's not out of the fish yet. As far as Jonah knows, he's going to die. He, he, has, he does not know what's about to happen. You and I do, so we have that benefit. But Jonah's in the middle right now. He has no idea what's about to happen. For all he knows, this is my last breath. And I'm saying salvation comes from the Lord. So you see, his situation, his circumstance might not have changed, but Jonah was changed. And that's the awesome thing. That awesome? Jonah's heart changed by the grace of God. Does grace have the power to do that? Yes, it does. Does grace have the power to put a step in your, a dance in your step? Yes, it does. Does grace have the power to change the worst among us? Yes, it does. I want to close this morning by telling you the story of John Newton. You ever heard of John Newton? Not to be confused with Olivia Newton, John, or Isaac Newton, or their cousin Fig Newton. You don't want to confuse him with that. But John Newton, and, and listen, um, don't let the haircut fool you, okay? The, I know he looks like he's wearing earmuffs, but he's really a tough dude, okay? So listen, 
I, I, I look at this picture, I wonder, who was the first guy back in the 1700s to think that was cool? Like, hey, let's do this with my hair, okay. <laughs> I don't know, I wonder. Okay, so all that, that has nothing to do with it. John Newton. So, John Newton was born in 1725 to a religious mother and a very irreligious seafaring captain father. At the age of seven, in 1732, his mother died of tuberculosis, leaving him alone. His father was irresponsible and dumped him off to go on and live his life until John turned 11. So for about five years, four or five years, he was on his own. And then his father found a use for him on the ship that he captained. And so he brought young John at the age of 11, 11 onto his boat to work with the rest of the crew. In John's testimony, by the time he's a teenager, he became a full-blown alcoholic, rage, rough and tumble, in his own words, a wretch. Matter of fact, uh, he was um, so bad, uh, it is said that he was able to cuss for two hours straight without repeating himself. I don't even know how you, I can't think of that many cuss words, but he was apparently able to, he was that bad. He was um, so bad one time, he, so at the age of 19, he started to captain his own boat. And he was, he got his entire crew one time drunk and he fell overboard and they had to spear him with a hook to bring him back on board. His men hated him. He was not liked at all. So much so that when he was 20 years old, the captain of his boat, his men abandoned him on the north shore of Africa, the northern coast of Africa. It's like, John, look over there. <laughs> and they all hopped on the boat and sailed away. John ended up being taken into slavery by a local African princess who completely mistreated him, abused him, beat him, starved him, made him eat dirt, literally. He lived a living hell for two years. He escaped her grasp and he made it to the beach, and he had a smoke fire, SOS fire, and he was amazingly rescued by a ship that passed by. You would say, that must have changed John's life, but it didn't. He became, he, was, he took all of his anger, took all of his hatred, and he began to pour it out on the African people, and he became one of the most notorious slave traders that Great Britain had. He continued this way until one night they're in their ship and the ship was hit by a really bad storm off the coast of Ireland. It's another storm. What is it about God and storms getting people's attention? Bad storm off the coast of Ireland. The ship struck a rock and gashed a hole in the bottom and it began to take on water and John and his men thought for sure that was it, we're gonna die. It's over. And John did something that night that he had not done in a very long time. He remembered the prayers of his mom. And he prayed, God, help me. And in his journal, he writes that a miracle happened. The ship lilted, and the cargo in the bottom of the ship shifted and ended up plugging in the hole a little bit, enough to stop the flow of water a lot and enabled them to get to the shore. John went on from there to give his life completely to Jesus, went on to seminary, became a pastor of a church in only England. 
ended up becoming friends with a young politician by the name of John Wilberforce. And John Wilberforce and John Newton worked tirelessly for decades to abolish slavery in Great Britain. And in fact, in 1807, they actually got it done without there ever being a war. John thankfully lived to see his life's work happen. But shortly after the bill was passed, John Newton died. And on his tombstone in a graveyard in Olney, England, you can read this about John Newton. It says, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Amazing, huh? How a man could be so changed. John Newton, ironically, is not really known anymore as that notorious slave trader. In fact, he's known more for the song he wrote that in the last 200 years has been probably recorded more than any other song, without a doubt, one of the most popular songs in the last two centuries. He called it Faith's Review and Expectation. You ever heard of it? You probably don't know the title, Faith's Review and Expectation, but you know it by its first line. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Does God's grace have the power to turn a slave trader into an abolitionist? Yes. Does God's grace have the power to turn a drunk into someone who's sober? Yes. Does God's grace have the power to turn a drug addict into someone who's clean? Yes. Does God's grace have the power to turn a deadbeat dad into a faithful father? Yes. Does it have the power to turn a wayward woman into a loving mother? Yes. God's grace has the power to change you from the inside out. It does for you what nothing else can do for you. Now, you need to understand something. God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus his life in order to give it to you. Jesus died on a cross and he suffered that death so that you and I could go free, so that we could be set free. Do you understand? It's free to you, but it's not cheap. It's costly, but that's the power of grace. When I live understanding the cost of the gift that I have, it changes me. It's a motivator. It's a motivator. Motivates the, in ways that guilt can never motivate a person. 
And God says, here, I'm giving it to you. And now you and I, to go back to my first, first illustration, you and I are cruising in the car with the Corinthian leather seats and the sunroof and the kick and sound system, enjoying the gift that Jesus paid to give to us. And we say, ooh, I want to live in a life worthy of that gift. It's the power of grace. It changes you. I want to know this morning, have you received it? The first step to receiving God's grace in your life is to admit that you need it. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.